There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Tonight on The Readout. The members are reminded to abide by decorum of the house. Democrats are taking rude, crude, and shouty Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's calls for decorum in the House as seriously as the Republicans seem to be taking the threat to our economy with their manufactured debt ceiling crisis. But I'm guessing our veterans and Social Security recipients are not laughing. Plus, the longest January 6th sentence so far as Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes gets 18 years for seditious conspiracy. And later, Ron DeSantis' disastrous campaign rollout leads to speculation that pudding may have been clogging up the Twitter tubes. Yuck. But we begin tonight with the Republican lie that could plunge our nation off of an economic cliff. With just seven days until the United States could default on our debt, talks between Republicans and White House representatives have yet to resolve the issue. But today, President Biden made a very important point. It is time for Congress to act now. Now, I want to be clear that the negotiations we're having with Speaker McCarthy is about the outlines of what the budget will look like, not about default. I mean, he's right. And this is why the White House, and this is the way the White House is clearly thinking about it. But let's just be clear. What Biden said is literally why this is a manufactured crisis. The debt ceiling, our nation's credit limit, is not a legitimate thing to be negotiated any more than whether or not you can refuse to pay your credit card bill until your spouse negotiates next year's holiday spending budget is legit. You literally have to pay the bill for the money you already spent on your card, regardless of what you intend to spend going forward. And if you've reached a credit limit and you have a AAA credit rating like the U.S. does, you can call your card company and they can raise your limit. The end. And Republicans know this. Trust me, they know it because they raised the debt limit three times when Trump was president. No questions asked. It's only when a Democrat is president that they threaten to torch our national national credit rating by not paying the bill. That is exactly what they did when Biden's old boss, President Obama, was in the White House in 2011, holding that administration hostage the exact same way with the same demands to slash spending on the working poor and their kids and health care and earning the U.S. its first credit downgrade ever. And the Senate Majority Leader at the time, one Addison Mitch McConnell, admitted what he learned from that awful exercise was that the U.S. economy is a hostage worth ransoming. Boom. So now we are here again, because one party has once again decided to take us here on purpose. And if you don't want to believe me, here, here's the evidence. This is a president that is failing the American people. So I think that bodes very well for the Republican field. 
That is Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna 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 Romney McDaniel. She has Michael Steele's old job. Joining the Quiet Part Out Loud Club with Matt Gates, who said earlier this week that he and his MAGA colleagues do not feel like they should negotiate with our hostage. Speaker, in scare quotes, Kevin McCarthy's real boss in the House, Marjorie Taylor Greene, had a different take. No one is freaking out. No one is concerned about this mystery date that Janet Yellen has thrown out like it's going to like it's going to actually crash America. Regular Americans living their lives day in and day out. Don't worry about the government the shutting old, down. The- OK, this is why they laughed at you. OK, Marge, tell that to the mortgage holder at the CrossFit gym that you own. You know, the one that you got that sweet PPP grant money for. Or the senior citizens in your district in rural Georgia who won't get their checks if the debt limit isn't resolved by June 1st. Because seniors are among the regular Americans who will be the first to suffer. A potential default means $47 million in Medicare provider benefits and $12 billion in veterans benefits will not be paid on June 1st either. Then on June 2nd, $25 billion in Social Security payments will go unpaid. Payments to the oldest and poorest Social Security recipients, retirees older than 88 years, and seniors with especially low incomes will get the chop first. You know that's next week, right? But Republicans seem stoked to not pay America's bills to own the libs. Did I mention that $12 billion in veterans' benefits are also at risk? The Veterans Administration warned of catastrophic effects for the more than 7.1 million veterans and their families whose benefits will not be paid out. But the most galling part is not just what Republicans are doing, playing with the livelihoods of regular Americans and claiming no one gives a crap, but that they're doing it this weekend, this weekend, the timing, as House Democratic Whip Catherine Clark pointed out. I don't know how my colleagues across the aisle who voted for the Default on America Act are going to look our veterans in the eye this Memorial Day. You, you have presented our country with an impossible choice, devastating cuts or devastating default, hungry families or homeless seniors, kids without classrooms or parents without jobs. And now you're sending us home with no resolution. I'm joined now by Democratic California Congressman Ro Khan, a member of the House Committee on Oversight and Deputy Whip of the Progressive Caucus, and John Soltz, chairman and co-founder of VoteVets.org and a two-tour Iraq war veteran. I'm coming right back to you, John, but I'm going to ask you, Ro Khanna, as I put it back up there again, I'm going to put this little chart back up that our wonderful producer put together. Medicare, $47 billion. Veterans benefits, $12 billion right before Memorial Day. Have your colleagues on the other side of the aisle explain to you what they do intend to tell their constituents about why they get to go home and chill and their constituents, including veterans on Memorial Day weekend, won't get their checks next week? Joy, it's a sad situation. They don't care. They don't care about the harm they're doing because this is a manufactured crisis, as you've said. They are holding the country hostage to enact radical policies that they know they can't win in an ordinary debate. They can't win it in an election, so this is their tactic. And we need to call them out on that. And thankfully, this president is acting responsibly to make sure we don't default.
You know, the company Fitch, which basically rates U.S. credit, they're doing what your credit card company would do if you said, you know what, I'm not paying these bills because my spouse and I couldn't agree on what we're going to spend next year for Christmas. They've already said, yeah, we're going to we're going to we're going to cut your (laughs) we're going to cut your your credit credit rating, which is what any creditor would do. I just want to put up this chart here. This is how the debt has increased. Right. And how the debt limit has increased over time, going all the way back to the Reagan era. It just goes up, 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 up. And the Democrat and the Republicans in Congress kept voting for that and that and that. And they did it every year. There it is. There's the chart. It just goes up, up, up. Because, John Soltz, that is how American credit works. You do the spending and then you have to go back and pay the credit card bill. And this budget is a completely separate thing. It has nothing to do with the debt limit. They are separate things. As a veteran, is your head exploding listening to people debate and, quote unquote, negotiate over two separate things and combining them and putting veterans checks at risk at risk? But, you know, generally speaking, it, it, it's it's always hurtful when Republicans vote for essentially every war and, and you know, $100 billion a year of, of funding. Um, but we never take into consideration what those costs are going to be over the long term. And so to be held hostage and see veterans benefits held hostage, it, it's it's serious stuff. Service connected veterans who are 100 percent disabled, having their checks threatened, active duty service members, members of the military reserve. Uh, gold star families and survivor benefits. These are all practical things. And when you listen to Marjorie Taylor Greene on the lead in, it's like, you know, she lives on Pluto. Like, of course, these are issues that regular people are, are nervous about. And so I, I think, you know, I, I can't sit here and tell you every veteran understands why the debt crisis is happening, but they're going to understand when they don't get their check. And they're not going to get their check because the Republican Party in 2023 is a pro war, anti military, anti veteran party. And that's the reality. Of, of what we're dealing with. And, and, and Congressman Connell on the committee and the rest of the committee, uh, Chris Deluzio and others have just done a phenomenal job of, of, of holding Republicans accountable for using veterans as a brokerage chip. Even Jen Kiggins, the new Republican congressman in the second congressional district of Virginia said, this is the only bargaining chip we have. And that is extraordinary that they openly admit that they're using disability payments and military pay to hold hostage the rest of the country on this debt deal. It, it, it is, it is, it is, Bananas, uh, Congressman, because they're literally saying that they're, as John Soule said, they're saying we're just going to not pay the veterans in our own states. These red states have disproportionate numbers of veterans of mil- of active duty military. They're literally saying we won't pay them because their assumption is those people are conservative. They'll just blame Biden. Texas has four hundred and twenty one thousand 21,000 people who receive federal financial support who are veterans. California's a big state. They've got the next biggest. Look at Florida. Look at North Carolina. Look at Ohio. Congressman, they are literally threatening to take the checks, the food out of the mouths of their own constituents to own the libs and to take away, you know, meals on wheels and head start. It makes no sense. Joy, you're right. And John, thank you for your service to our country and for being such a voice of 
clarity. Here is what is so frustrating and sad. The Republicans will take away the benefits from veterans who risk their lives for this nation, but they're unwilling to take away the obscene profits of defense contractors. 60 Minutes did a documentary just uh, this week, $100 billion plus that is being wasted because defense contractors are ripping us off. They don't want to talk about that, but they want to take away money from the veterans, from the people who put on the uniform. They want to take away the money from the most vulnerable. Their values are just out of whack. I mean, John Soltz, they have taken the Pentagon off the table. They've also taken uh, getting rid of loopholes for the super rich off the table, leaving only things that also a lot of veterans, you know, are not making, you know, lots and lots of money. If you're a veteran that's also working, uh, you know, among the working poor, you know, and you're working as a clerk or something, they're saying they want to make you work longer hours in order to get your check that you're, that you're due. It, let me just play this for you, because what I think really galls me the most is that, they, that the White House doesn't even have to do this. Let me play Jamie Raskin and what he said on this show this week. We've got the Constitution on our side, and the 14th Amendment says that the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned, which to my mind means that forced to the edge by these mega extremists, the president has no other choice but to respect the laws of the country and pay our bills to the Social Security recipients, the Medicare recipients, veterans and the bondholders of the country. Um, John, do in your mind and in the minds of the people that you served with, shouldn't the, should the White House just stop negotiating with these people and just pay the bills? I, I'm not quite sure. You know, I, I, I don't if if the White House doesn't negotiate, then, you know, everything's going to be in chaos. And I, I think, you know, the, the problem here is the speaker doesn't have control of his own party. So even when we we kind of beat them up really bad on the 22 percent cut to the VA and, and they sort of have backed off some of that, if we default, everything's in play. So everybody gets hurt. Right. In addition to that, now. All of these other issues are complicated because there's a lot of veterans on active or military active duty that uses food stamps. There's a lot of veterans that use meals yeah. on wheels. So it's it's sort of like a surgical conversation. And, you know, without debating the merits of debt, the ramifications of how people are going to get hurt is tremendous. So they can sit here and say now, OK, we're backing off the, the 22 percent cut to the VA, uh, which is sort of the anticipated cut. But if we default, everyone's crushed. And so no, I think, look, the concern is going to be where's the House versus the president on what deal the president cuts. Right. And, and I think, you know, that's a debate that Congressman Khanna, I'm sure is, you know, very familiar with as we all are watching the numbers in, in the next few hours, but for practical people and practical veterans, you know, veterans outperformed for Joe Biden by 12 points compared to Hillary Clinton. It was a constituency where Democrats began to make up ground. It hurts my heart that the American Legion and the VFW do not attack Republicans in in election campaigns for doing this and they continue to get away with it. So even though they've said they're not going to do certain cuts, they're still trying to make burn pit cuts uh, and make funding go from mandatory to discretionary. So there's a variety of engineering that they're making. So the negotiation is extraordinarily important from the White House to ensure that, you know, they don't give the house away and all of these Americans are going to get crushed and hurt because you can get crushed by a shutdown, but you can also get crushed by the by the cuts. Absolutely. And Ro Khanna, do you feel that the White House is talking enough to your caucus because you're representing the people, by and large, who are going to get really hurt and who they're targeting for the cuts? Joy, they are in they are in touch. Here's what's sad. 
The Republicans are taking advantage of this president's decency, of his sense of compassion, of his patriotism, of his sense of duty. There's one person in the United States of America who's responsible to make sure the economy doesn't crash, and that's Joe Biden. And they're holding him and the country hostage. And we need to be very clear that this is not the president of the White House's fault. This is the Republicans manufacturing the crisis. Uh, I support this president, and we're going to back him up to make sure that he does not hurt vulnerable people. But let's just understand what they're doing, the Republicans are doing, to take advantage of a person who's very decent and trying to just make sure this country stays uh, afloat. Um, we will continue to watch this and on uh, a happy uh, well, Memorial Day. We'll see how things go. And thank you. I will join in thanking you for your service, John Soltz, uh, Congressman Ro Khanna and John Soltz from Vote Vets. Thank you both. Up next on The Readout, Oath Keepers leader Elmer Stewart Rhodes gets the longest sentence yet for his role in the insurrection. But many are saying it's not long enough. The Readout continues after this. Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgart, Fgartigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgart.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash MOA. Brought to you by Argenix. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 18 years. That is the sentence a federal judge handed down to Elmer Stewart Rhodes, founder of the right-wing extremist group The Oath Keepers. Rhodes was convicted of seditious conspiracy related to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. It is the longest sentence so far handed down to any of the January 6th insurrectionists. In delivering the sentence, Judge Amit Mehta said Rhodes presents an ongoing threat and a peril to this country and to the republic and to the very fabric of this democracy. Yet the judge chose to give Rhodes less than the 25 years that prosecutors were seeking, which was well within the federal guidelines. It wasn't as if Rhodes was showing any remorse in court today. The judge even said so. Appearing in an orange jumpsuit, Rhodes called himself a political prisoner and said the only crime he committed was opposing those who are, quote, destroying our democracy. Also notable during his sentencing, Rhodes took the time to endorse the man who brought him to the Capitol that day, wishing for Donald Trump to win the 2024 presidential election. Perhaps it has something to do with Trump's promise to pardon many of his January 6th foot soldiers. Rhodes is one of 10 defendants from the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys convicted of seditious conspiracy. His fellow Oath Keeper Kelly Meggs was also sentenced today. 
to 12 years behind bars. I'm joined now by Frank Figluzzi, former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI and an MSNBC national security analyst. Great to see you, Frank. I want to play what um, Stuart Rhodes' defense team said after this whole sentencing was over. Here, here they are. Based on Judge Mehta's uh, belief of what the facts show and his recitation of that yesterday and today, um, I believe that was lower than what I thought Mehta would do. It was lower than you thought today. Yeah. I, after today, I thought it would be higher. I anticipated much higher than an 18-year sentence. Not that I agree with the sentence, but I anticipated much more based on the way that he was leading up to it. Correct. Frank, I agree with them. Just reading through what the judge was saying, the way he blasted uh, Elmer Rhodes, I was surprised that it was only 18 years. Were you? Joy, I'm with you on this. Look, it's a stiff sentence, but I compare it to other federal crimes. You rob a couple of banks, you're looking at 15 to 20 years in prison. You commit and are convicted of what I believe to be the second most severe charge the federal government can throw at you, seditious conspiracy. The only thing worse would be treason, betraying the country while at war. And you get 18 years. You try to rob the country of its democracy, not money in a bank. You try to rob it of the peaceful transition of power. So yeah, I'm with you. Um, I think it's stiff, but it's still too light. And nevertheless, there is some good news coming out of this joy in the sense that we're already seeing a chilling effect from this prosecution of Oath Keepers leadership. Folks in law enforcement who signed up years ago for something called Oath Keepers, they didn't know what what they were signing up for. Many of them now saying, hey, time out. Uh, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up for seditious conspiracy. So there's that. There's also a blow with the sentence to the militia movement. Um, Not the hardcore, diehard domestic terror guys who are all in on chaos and anarchy. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about the, the folks out there who are going, yeah, maybe not. Maybe I'm not showing up for the violence, you know? Yeah. yeah. So and, and there's I'm something. Guessing there's so, and, and also, if people really believe that Donald Trump gives a damn about any of these people and is going to pardon them, I got a bridge to sell them, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge, and you can have it for a mere, you know, five ninety five. Like, he doesn't care about these people. I'm thinking if you are, and let's just go through, the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys have been convicted of seditious conspiracy. It's now a large group of people. If I'm, let's say, Enrique Tario, who, like Stuart Rhodes, Elmer Rhodes, was not physically at the Capitol, and he sees him get 18 years. This guy's 58 years old. He won't be out till he's in his 70s. Not long enough, but pretty long. I'm thinking they've got to be worried, right, when they get sentenced. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, who else do we know who's very high profile and wasn't inside the Capitol as neither Enrique Enrique Terrio or Stuart Rhodes were, but helped instigate, incite, coordinate, plan violence that day? Yeah. So that's people (laughs) like Donald Trump, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, who all must look at this. But you know who else is looking at this as a as kind of a beta test? I think special uh, counsel Jack Smith is looking at this going, hmm. wow, um, we've had now two major cases, Proud Boys cases, Oath Keepers cases, very serious cases. D.C. juries aren't buying their stories. And he may be emboldened to really, really levy the most serious charges against Trump and his cohorts. Do, do you think that this kind of a sentence, because it is stiff, we don't want to make it sound like we don't think that it is a rough sentence. It's 18 years is a long time. 
Do you think that this might help unlock some of the answers to the questions we haven't got answered? Who put those pipe bombs down? Like, do people start talking? Just in your experience as an FBI uh, official, do, does it loosen up uh, people's uh, remembrance and memories of the truth when they see people going away for this amount of time to maybe turn state's evidence? Oh, yeah. This could be come to Jesus time for a lot of folks who are thinking, I'm not I'm not doing a plea deal. I'm not cooperating. Now they look at 18 years for Rhodes and they go, maybe I will cooperate and start talking. So I think you're going to see some cooperation deals. You'll, you'll start seeing some plea deals for some of these folks and they'll be quietly cooperating. That's that's the hope here anyway. You'll find out who has the highest IQ among these people who are all you know on the loser end of the spectrum. When one of them starts talking, that's the smart one. Uh, Frank Figluzzi, thank you very much. And still ahead, marking three years since the murder of George Floyd and the advocacy and activism he inspired. But as President Biden reminded us today, there is still a lot of work to be done. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In just a few hours, the city of Minneapolis will hold a candlelight vigil to honor George Floyd, three years after he was murdered at the hands of police officers. It was on this day in 2020 that Derek Chauvin was caught on camera holding his knee on Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes as Floyd gasped for air, pleading, I can't breathe. And three other officers helped hold him down or just did nothing. It was a moment that changed the narrative of the Black Lives Matter movement. In some ways, it changed the expectation of accountability in this country, since it's so rare that police officers are actually convicted for killing people of color. Tonight, all four officers involved in George Floyd's murder are in prison. Chauvin is serving a 22-and-a-half-year sentence for second-degree murder. Floyd's murder, caught excruciatingly on video by a 17-year-old girl, sparked a mass protest movement right in the middle of the global coronavirus pandemic. And those huge multiracial protests all across the country then became the catapult for the right's anti-woke insurgency, while adding fresh urgency to the national conversation on race and policing that Black Lives Matter kicked off a decade before. And while we have seen some movement legislatively on the local level, a handful of states banning chokeholds and no-knock warrants, mandating body cameras and limiting qualified immunity— Three years later, there has been zero police reform passed on the federal level, even as police, police killings continue. And a bill named after George Floyd languishes in Congress. 
Joining me now is Katie Fang, trial attorney and host of The Katie Fang Show here on MSNBC, and Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, law professor at Georgetown University, and MSNBC legal analyst. We decided to bring the band back together. These were my all-stars who covered the George Floyd trial with me basically every day. Um, Paul, we did this like on a daily And I'm just curious to get your thoughts on what has changed and what has not changed enough. So more bad apple cops are being brought to justice before George Floyd. The officers who killed Breonna Taylor, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile were not prosecuted. So it means something that Derek Chauvin is serving a 22-year life sentence and the three other officers implicated in Mr. Floyd's death are also facing federal time. At the same time, Police officers continue to kill 1,000 people or more every year. That number has actually gone up since George Floyd was murdered. And black and brown people still experience the violent warrior-type policing that the whole world saw with what those five Memphis officers did to Tyree Nichols. Yeah, and you know, Katie, it it feels to me like— there's been an up and down, right? I mean, yes, there have been the, the, the number of police killings in 2022 was was the highest. Uh, it reached actually an historic high um, of 1,096 people. There are only 15 days without an officer involved shooting in 2022. So it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And it does feel like just like with the Trayvon Martin situation, the idea of violence against black and brown bodies has like transferred from police to civilians like it did in the Trayvon Martin case. It doesn't feel like we've come as far as we could. How do you feel about it? Today, President Biden said on the third anniversary of George Floyd's murder, equal justice is the covenant that we have with each other. But justice has to be viewed through the lens of who's meeting out the justice. And when it isn't looked at the lens of true equality, then it's just lip service. And I think to Paul's point and to your point, the deaths are the facts. The deaths aren't stopping and they are occurring at the hands of civilians, but they're also occurring at the hands of law enforcement. You can't paint all law enforcement with one swath of one brush saying they're all bad. There is bad apples in all groups of people. But I think the fact that cops are given guns and they're given badges and they're imbued with the ability and the authority to be able to meet out lethal force is what really needs to be considered. The fact that the police the policing justice and policing act for George Floyd, the fact that it stalls in Congress is the greatest shame. I think America should have for a long time because the sticking point joy is qualified immunity, a judicially created legal doctrine that the Supreme court created to protect from civil liability, the misconduct of police officers. But what happens is the powerful and very muddy-backed forces of police unions and police benevolent associations, they put fear in politicians to think that, just like the NRA, for example, that if they were to do the right thing, that they would not be able to succeed in their offices. They use phrases like defund the police to equate them with this concept of qualified immunity. But that is not right, and that's not accurate. So I think in shame, we stand here three years later after the murder of George Floyd, and we really haven't had significant movement other than President Biden and his executive order from last year. Yeah, I mean, you wrote, you wrote a book called, uh, an excellent book called Chokehold, which uh, everyone should read, uh, Paul. But, you know, at the same time, 
the number of, you know, the fear that I have and that a lot of black folks, and I'm sure that you have when you see the, woo, you know, lights on the street is, is, is that you can get shot, right? That you can get shot for having the wrong air conditioner hanging in your car, that for, you know, a, a minor traffic stop can become uh, a killing. And that police, and that to Katie's point, cities are willing to pay. They'd rather pay than change anything. Um, the num- the amount of money paid out just last year, I mean, just in 2020 was $80 million collectively, and that's tax dollars being paid. So essentially, we're just essentially funding the killing of people by police. Yeah, millions and millions of dollars to compensate victims of police brutality. Not as much work being done to prevent that brutality. To be fair, 30 states after George Floyd's murder revised their criminal legal codes or their police police codes to make there be more accountability and sure. more oversight. But there are 18,000 different police departments in the United States, which means that there are 18,000 different ways of policing. The George Floyd Act would have imposed some national standards, right. but that act has been stalled by in Congress, mainly by Republicans who don't want bad apple cops to be held accountable. Yeah, hashtag uh, Tim Scott, who thinks he's going to be president of the United States. Um, and Katie, just in looking at it, there are people kind of understand what could work. One of the things I think has been positive since George Floyd is there has been more conversation about having mental health professionals respond to mental health crises, not cops, having police actually do less. Uh, And do you think that that might be a solution is has pulled police out of situations where their only solution is a gun or a nightstick and you could actually have somebody that's got some mental health training instead? Yeah. And Paul and I, we've actually talked about this before. Crisis in training or or crisis reactions from cops is nothing new. The fact that we're having this conversation that it seems like it's some nouveau idea, you know, today is absurd because the realization of the recognition that some of these escalated scenarios that police are using use of force matrices to try to justify lethal force is absurd because they should have the proper training. And again, it resorts back to the idea. We allow these police officers, we allow people to be given badges and guns, which we don't give to other people. And we presume that they're going to be able to do their jobs properly. And that's why sometimes they need federal and state laws to do so. And and also we send them out there in a society with 420 million civilian owned firearms and then wonder why also they're also freaked out uh, by everyone that they run into, especially with sort of inherent anti-blackness, all kind of issues. We could do this for an hour. Katie Fang and Paul Butler, our all-star legal team, thank you both very much. And up next, remember back in 2007 when a young senator from Illinois was greeted by tens of thousands of enthusiastic supporters as he stood up to announce that he was running for president? Yeah. And then there was Ron DeSantis' announcement last night. More on that debacle after this. (laughs) Okay, something kind of funny happened on Twitter last night. Okay, I'm playing. It was really funny. Ron DeSantis announced that he's running for president of the United States. The rollout was odd, embarrassing, marred by technical glitches from the start. Frankly, it was a hot mess (laughs) that imploded in real time and in a very public way. All right. Sorry about that. We we've got so many people here that I think we are we are uh, kind of melting the servers. Let's see. So we go. Yeah, I think so. Um, Just to simplify this. So let's see. So they just keep crashing here. Huh? I think we're back online here. Great. Um, all right. Well, it's certainly uh, an, an incredible honor to uh, have Governor DeSantis uh, make this uh, stark announcement. Mm-hmm. 
thought he was supposed to be a genius. It was an unusual decision to begin with, right? DeSantis kicking off his much-anticipated battle with Donald Trump on an audio-only platform called Twitter Spaces. So while his official campaign ad before the failure to launch looked like this, the video tweeted out after the Twitter debacle by the DeSantis War Room, which is a Twitter account run by the DeSantis Rapid Response Team, doubled down on the disaster in a very weird way, boosting the Ron-Elon connection even more. There he was, like, shooting a flamethrower thing and, like, being all Elon Musky in this weird big-up video, co-starring with the candidate. Like, hard to tell who's running for president, Ron or Elon, who literally, like, can't. <laughs> he was born in apartheid-era South Africa. But keep in mind, this is what Ron DeSantis does. He associates himself with more famous people when he runs for office. It's an old trick, like, hey, American voter, you don't know who I am, but here's whose ideology I match. Remember, he did the same thing with Donald Trump when he ran for governor in 2018, releasing this rather creepy ad showing his kid building the wall with toy blocks. Mega onesies for everyone. I mean, don't look at me, the ad screams. Look at how much I love Trump. He's doing it all over again, but for Elon this time. This is the person DeSantis most identifies with these days. They share an ideology that seems libertarian on the surface, meaning certain people, basically people who look like Elon Musk and Ron DeSantis, get the freedom to do or say whatever I want, whatever I want, no matter how racist, cruel, or offensive. No censorship, no masks, my body, my choice. But for you, it's pure authoritarianism. Wokeism is dangerous. Fascism, though, free speech. Don't tread on me is for them. The authoritarianism is for you. Your kid can't read certain books or learn about history while their kids get Christian prayer in school and get to hurl the N-word on Twitter with no consequences. They get to decide what bathroom you use, what you can wear. They even get to tell you your gender identity and your kids, too. That's not up to you. That's their call. Oh, and ladies, your body, their choice. Musk has become a guru for people who share this philosophy. Libertarianism for me, my rules for thee. And DeSantis wants to take that MO all the way to the White House, capping off his launch with an anti-woke rant on Fox News. Well, the woke mind virus is basically a form of cultural Marxism. At the end of the day, it's an attack on the truth. And because it's a war on truth, I think we have no uh, choice but to wage a war on woke. Woke mind virus, he says, you know, a nonsense term created by, you guessed it, Elon Musk. What does that even mean for most Americans? That we're just a bunch of zombies infected not by COVID? No, 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 surely that virus is fake. While the real virus, according to D and Dumb, is wokeism. And the cure? Having the government of Florida, and if DeSantis gets his way, the federal government, tell us how to dress, where to pee, but especially what to read which is why PEN America, which is leading the fight against book banning, has filed a lawsuit against a Florida school district, saying it unlawfully removes or restricts access to books on race, racism, and LGBTQ identities. PEN America's CEO and one of the authors whose book was removed, join me next. So the whole book ban thing is a hoax. There's not been a single book banned in the state of Florida. You can go buy or, or use whatever book you want. <laughs> Nothing like kicking off a presidential campaign with a big fat lie. Unchecked on Elon Twitter, of course. Does this man actually know what's happening in his state? Like how in one county alone, at least 100 books were pulled from school libraries because of the complaints of one person? 
PEN America, the nonprofit group that advocates for free expression, is monitoring these bans across the country. Alongside publisher Pendum Random House, authors and parents, they have filed a lawsuit against a Florida school district for removing books related to race and the LGBTQ community after a high school teacher complained. Joining me now is Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America, and Ashley Hope Perez, a plaintiff in the suit and author of Out of Darkness, one of the most banned books in recent years, according to PEN America. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Ms. Nossel, please explain your lawsuit. Sure. Great to see you, Joyce. Great to be here. We are suing in Escambia County, challenging under both the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, the removal and banning of books for students in school libraries. These books overwhelmingly target uh, stories and authors and narratives of people of color and LGBTQ individuals. So that raises a discrimination claim under the Constitution. And then from a First Amendment perspective, they're picking and choosing books that they don't like, that they portray stories that they don't agree with, that they think are inappropriate, that don't depict a family the way they think it should be shown and just picking and choosing and taking those off the shelves. And that's viewpoint-based discrimination, precisely what strikes at the heart of the First Amendment. So we're asking the court to stand with us and vindicate these kids' freedom to read. And and the thing is, is that if you look at the commonly banned books, Gender Queer is the number one most banned book in the country. These, these are the four most commonly. All Boys Aren't Blue, which is about the LGBTQ experience, Out of Darkness, the, your book, uh, Ashley, um, and The Bluest Eye and uh, is are the other books. So, Ashley, tell us about your book and how surprised were you when you found out it was banned? What's your book about? Well, Out of Darkness takes a historical event as the backdrop for an interracial romance. Um, You look at the cover. This is one of the reasons why right-wing groups love to wave this book around and say that it's filth. Um, But uh, one of the things that is interesting is that this book was on the shelves from 2015 to 2021 without a single complaint. And as Mm. a high school English teacher, I can tell you that's because it it meets the needs of young readers. It helps high school students reckon with our our history, look at what are the realities of racism in America, and imagine other possibilities for the future. Um, In 2021, right-wing groups started telling parents that that was a problem. And that's when books like Out of Darkness started being targeted. And you, were, you, you said you were a former English teacher. I believe I did see you with my good friend, Ali Velshi, uh, talking about this book as well. Um, he is in his band book club is everything. But I mean, you, you you understand having taught kids how, I mean, The Bluest Eye is one of the greatest books I've ever read. It, it opened me up to the, you know, to the love of language when we fall in love with words. And because Toni Morrison is a brilliant writer, you're a brilliant writer. It, what does it do to kids like the kids you used to teach when you take away from them the joy of words and the joy of reading about new and interesting and different experiences. It's all about control and narrowing the possibilities of imagination. And I think that when you think about uh, what does it mean when someone, the core of someone's uh, agenda is subtraction, is taking away possibility, that should be a really big red flag for folks. And that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing folks who don't want kids to be able to imagine full and rich lives lived by people who are different from themselves or like themselves, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's one of the really important things to underscore that this is fundamentally subtractive and it is an 
uh, a diminishing of every student's education when we remove books that reflect young people's experiences or allow them to imagine other people's experiences. Right. And it's also unfair. I mean, you know, Ms. Nossel, I mean, how can one, I mean, we've, there was a Washington Post went through and they looked at the book challenges around the country and found that 11 people are responsible for the majority of them. How do 11 people think they have the right to tell all students what they are allowed to read. Amanda Gorman's poem was banned in Miami-Dade County because one parent who's associated with the Proud Boys, by the way, said that she didn't like it because she didn't like what she said had on race. As you said, as a First Amendment matter, I don't even understand how it's legal for one person or 11 people to tell every other kid and every other parent what is allowed to be read. Well, it absolutely shouldn't be. Look, they wrap themselves in the banner of parents' rights. And what they're doing is letting these few isolated individuals trample over the rights of tens of thousands, even millions across the state, parents and children who have a right to read. And so it's absolutely counter-majoritarian. It's undemocratic. It's unpatriotic to, you know, here in the United States of America to resort to book bans. That's not how we do things here. If you don't like a book, you don't have to read it. You know, you can argue against it. You can write your own book, pick a different book. We've got plenty of things to deal with this. And so it's, uh, it, you know, it's really outrageous. And it's, it's good to be to see people like Amanda, authors like Ashley standing up. Absolutely. And I will, final question to you, um, Ashley. I, I, you probably didn't hear it because nobody could hear it because the, the, the tech didn't work. When you heard the governor of Florida say no book, not one book is being banned and your book is literally being banned. What did you make of that? It's it, it comes into basic vocabulary, right? It comes down to I mean, when people say these books are pornographic, I'm like, can we talk about vocabulary? Can we talk about what words mean? Right. So what's a ban? A ban is an official removal from any space. When people like school boards officially remove a book from a space, it is banned in that space that you can buy it on Amazon is irrelevant to the child in the school library. And by the way, if these people don't think that their children are reading heteronormative books that have sexual situations in them and the girl and the boy ain't kissing in the books, they've never been a child or a teenager because kids are already reading that stuff and they reading it online. Grow up. Your kids are more mature than you. Suzanne Nossel and Ashley Hope Perez, thank you both very much. And that is tonight's readout. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated. All right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.